All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to NCF. Those of you here who are in person and, of course, those are beloved who are at home watching us live or later today or maybe this week. Would you now join me in bowing your heads and asking for the Lord to bless us as we hear his word? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us now. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is not silent, but you are here, you are present, and you are very clear with the preaching that comes forth in the preaching of the gospel. God, we ask that you would bless your people as they have gathered here on this Lord's Day so that we would be refreshed, we would be renewed, and we would be reminded of the hope that we have in you and in you alone, the hope that truly is the hope of the world. Father, we ask that you would encourage us in spite of all the challenges that we are currently facing or the challenges that we are still recovering from. Father, you know the struggles and the sorrows that which we have carried, and you know the trials and temptations to which we have had to endure. And now, Lord, we pray that as we sit at your feet, you will encourage and empower us through this time of being edified in this gathering. Oh, Lord, would you now bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Yo, you dissing me, man? Yo, you dissing me, man? Back when I was in high school, that was a question I heard very prevalently as I roamed through the halls of my schools. And as you can tell from the tone, it's not the kind that you'd want directed at you because the person who would ask such a question would not be very happy to the person that he or she was directing that question to. Why? Well, for all intents and purposes, no one likes to be dissed. Dissed? Yeah, dissed as in disrespected. And come to think of it, not just disrespected, but any of those words that begin with dis, discouraged, disillusioned, disheartened, dismayed, whatever kind of dis you may be thinking of, no one likes to experience any of it. And yet here's the sad fact. The longer you live in this world, the more you will get dissed by it. Oh, it starts off somewhat mild and therefore somewhat bearable like you discovered a tooth fairy doesn't exist. Or that sometimes cheaters do win. But as you age, the disses, they get more painful, more traumatic, and therefore more unbearable. And as a result of going through all the various disses of life, you get so discouraged where sometimes you don't know what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad, what is true, and what is false. And when you find yourself in this kind of dizzying situation, you can't help but to cry out, is there anything that I can turn to that can recenter, realign, reestablish hope so I could have peace within and purpose without? Well, I'm here to tell you, yes, you can. But first, we're beginning a new sermon series as we kick off the new year on the core values of NCF. And the whole point of this series is to take a look at the fundamental core beliefs that we stand on as a church so that it could stabilize us in such a way that we could fulfill the vision that we feel God has called us to live out. And today we begin this series by taking a look at the very first core value, the hallmark of what we say is the core value of our church, and that is the Holy Scriptures or the Bible. Today I want to try and convince you that the Bible is the only thing that we can turn to to stabilize us so that not only can we survive in a world that disses us, but that we can even thrive in the midst of it. 
And the way the Bible does this is by showing us its unique and really one-of-a-kind understanding about history to where when we understand this conception of history, we are established and therefore reliant on the Bible. So with that in mind, three things I want to tell you about the Bible and its understanding of history that gives us hope in a world that disses us. And they are as follows. First, the Bible is important because it explains the message of history. Okay, number two, the Bible is important because it exhibits the person of history. And finally, the Bible is important because it exposes the judge of history. The Bible is so important to us because it explains the message of history, it exhibits the person of history, and it exposes the judge of history, okay? Let's begin with the first point. The Bible explains the message of history. Now, it might seem kind of odd for me to talk about the Bible and history in one sentence because for most people, they think that the Bible and history have nothing in common except that it makes most people bored, right? And because that is so, right, and you happen to think that way, that tells me that many of us don't really understand what history is all about. Let me explain. When most people think of history, they tend to think of it as simply a subject that you study when you're in school, specifically the study of past events. Christopher Columbus landed on America's shores in 1492. The 13 colonies declared its independence from Britain on July 4th, 1776. That's how most of us see history. Just a series of random events and obscure names all tied together to a specific date in the past, okay? And because that's how most of us see history, we tend to treat it the way we treat the Bible, and that is we never learn about it, we never study it. But consider this very poignant and ominous warning from one of the most powerful political leaders of the 19th century. Sir Winston Churchill once said these words, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. We must always look forward, but we have to understand our history in order to not repeat the mistakes of the past. I've seen too many instances where people continue to pursue wrong courses of actions because they do not take the time to think critically about what has happened in the past. Hmm. It turns out, History is not simply a boring chronicle list of random events and obscure names. No, history is like a prophet. It's like a prophet that can predict the future to where if we are hearing it and heeding it, it can prepare us for what the world could possibly throw at us, okay? But conversely, by not listening or learning about history to where we are not hearing its message, we are dooming ourselves of being severely traumatized in the various ways that the world could diss us. Now, by saying all this, I'm assuming something about the nature of reality, aren't I? The same assumption, actually, that the author of Ecclesiastes tells us over and over in that book. And you know what assumption I'm talking about? It's the assumption that goes like this. There is nothing new under the sun. There is nothing new under the sun. The sun. And what I mean by that, there is no individual, there is no society, there is no generation that is so special or so unique to where they don't have to go through what everyone has to go through in life. Here's the thing, folks. We all live in the same world, which means we're all exposed to the same sorrows, to the same sufferings, to the same traumas, to the same tribulations, to the same hardships and heartaches that previous people in the past had to go through, that people right now are going through, and people after us will have to go through. And you know why? Because in many ways, history repeats itself. History does indeed tend to repeat itself itself in fact even in our passage jesus tells us that is so for consider what he says in our passage starting in verse 32 we read 
From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Pause right there. Here, Jesus is talking about a future event that has yet to happen, right? It's the future event known as his second coming, the second advent of Jesus Christ. But here's what's so interesting. As he talks about this future event, he associates it with this imagery of a fig tree. Now, the question you might be wondering is, what in the world does the fig tree and the future have in common with each other? Well, it might be helpful to know that the fig tree was the only tree in this region that shed its leaves during the summer. It was the only tree in the Middle East that would shed its leaves during the summer, which means people looked to the fig tree to tell them when the summer was coming, which if you live in the Middle East is a good thing to know, where it gets pretty hot, where the concern of drought and heat waves are a real life and death worry, okay? So putting this together, Jesus is telling us that history, it's like the summer months. It comes back over and over, just like the summer months come back every year over and over. It cycles through again and again. It repeats itself. Now, with that established, we ask, what is the fig tree in this imagery? Well, it turns out the fig tree represents the person who interprets the message of the season. It interprets history. The fig tree represents the individual who is able to translate, decipher what history is trying to teach us, what its message actually is. Now, with that in mind, consider what Jesus says in verse 3 and 4. He goes on to say, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be a sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, listen, see that no one leads you astray. What's Jesus saying here? He's telling us that throughout history, there will be certain individuals who will claim they can understand and therefore translate the message of history to understand what history is trying to tell us, and yet they'll be so wrong, okay? And because they're going to be so misinformed, they're going to cause the misfortune of others. They're going to lead people astray, and indeed, we see this being the case even today. You see, there are so many people who try to tell us what they think history is trying to tell us, what the message of history is, and yet many of them contradict one another. Let me show you what I'm talking about. We're reading you two quotes that illustrate this. The first comes from author Matt Ridley. He writes the following, quote, The airwaves are crammed with doom. In my own adult lifetime, I have listened to implacable predictions of growing poverty, coming famines, expanding deserts, imminent plagues, impending water wars, inevitable oil exhaustion, mineral shortages, falling sperm counts, thinning ozones, acidifying rain, nuclear winters, mad cow epidemics, killer bees, global warming, ocean acidification, and even asteroid impacts that would presently bring this happy interlude to a terrible end. I cannot recall a time when one or other of these scares was not solemnly espoused by sober, distinguished, and serious elites and hysterically echoed by the media, end quote. Now listen to another one. This is from Harvard professor Steven Pinker. He writes, quote, The world is not falling apart. The kind of violence to which most people are vulnerable, homicide, rape, battering, child abuse, have been in steady decline in most of the world. Autocracy is giving way to democracy. Wars between states, by far the most destructive of all conflicts, are all but obsolete. Here you have two translations of what they claim to be the message of history, and yet they oppose, they contradict 
one another. And when you are confronted by these varying messages, you can't help but to wonder, who has the right understanding of history? Who understands the proper interpretation, the true meaning of what history is trying to say? And it's when you ask that question, you need to remember what Jesus says in our passage in verse 35. Listen again. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is telling us that it's his words, it's his interpretations, it's his translation to the message of history that we need to listen to and listen to alone. Why? Because unlike the fig tree that's here one day and gone the next, Jesus' words, they never go out of season. They are forever. They are permanent, which means his words are the accurate translation, therefore making the most authoritative understanding to the message of history. And when you understand that, now you understand why the Bible is so important, because where do we find the words of Jesus and only find it? In Scripture in the Holy Scriptures, you see? Jesus is telling us that the Bible is so important for not only Christians, but for the whole world because it is the only place where his words are found, words that properly help us understand history so that we can understand what is to come and how to endure in a world that disses us. Now, if you're here today or watching Investigating Christianity, you might think that this sounds like an outlandish claim. In fact, those of you who are Christian might think that sounds ridiculous because it just sounds so audacious. It sounds so arrogant. How could Jesus possibly make the claim that the Bible and the Bible alone is the only source of helping us understand the nature of life, the message of history? Well, we'll see in a minute. It's because of what he tells us the message of history actually is. And to help you understand that, let's go to our next point. The Bible exhibits the person of history. You know, every year, Time Magazine comes out with a special edition entitled Person of the Year, and it's basically a profile of a specific individual who, in their estimation, had the greatest impact, the greatest influence, and caused, both positively and negatively, the greatest inspiration. In previous editions, they profiled former U.S. presidents like Dwight D. Eisenhower, you know, political tyrants Adolf Hitler, or business gurus like Ted Turner or Mark Zuckerberg. Now, here's the thing. Within a few decades, most people most likely won't recognize those names that I just stated to you just now. In fact, I'm willing to guarantee that if you go out right now and ask the average high school American if they recognize those names, maybe one, maybe two of those names will be recognized. And I further guarantee that if you go outside the bounds of the U.S. country and ask a person outside of the United States if they recognize any of those names, hardly any of those names will be known. But once you name the name of Jesus, oh, that's a different story. Why? Because there is no name that is as recognized and as familiar as the name of Jesus Christ. You know, in our crazy social media age where so many everywhere are trying to get quote-unquote followers so that through their followers they can exhibit themselves out to the world, none of these folks, no matter how many followers they may have, will ever come close to the number of followers that our Lord Jesus Christ has. Consider these very eye-opening statistics 
from the Lausanne Com Committee for World Evangelism. Listen to what it says. At AD 100, one 360th of the world population was Christian. By AD 1000, one 220th of the world population was Christian. By 1500, the percentage of Christians rose to one 69th of the world population. By 1900, with a world population of slightly over 1 billion, Christianity has risen to one 27th of the population. By 1900, the percentage of Christians rose to one 7th of the worldwide population. As was stated previously, it is now estimated that there are 7 billion people on planet Earth and that one-third of them, full one-third of them, one out of every three people worldwide are followers of Jesus. Jesus is the most followed person in all of history, making him the most exhibited person of all history. And if you take a look, and what Jesus says about himself, he explains why this is the case. Take a, take a listen to what he says in verse 5 of our passage. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. You know, it's funny. When most people read that verse, they immediately think of that crazy cult leader who claims to be the reincarnation of Jesus, who is able to convince a bunch of gullible people to live with them in some isolated compound in the middle of nowhere in America, right? That's how most people think of this verse. But that's not what Jesus wants you to think at all. No, he wants to explain to you why so many claim to be him. Because such people make an assumption about Jesus that's actually true. And you know what that assumption is? It's the assumption that says Jesus is the reason why history even exists. Or if I could put it this way, history is really his story. In other words, everything that has ever happened in history, everything that is currently going on in history, everything that will ever happen in history is all because of Jesus. Even history that seemingly on the surface has no relevancy or connection to Jesus, like what was happening in ancient China before Jesus was even born. Yes, even that history, the Bible claims, is still all about Jesus. Consider what the Apostle Paul once claimed about this Jesus in Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is not simply the most famous person in history, which he is. Jesus is not even the most important person in all of history, which he is. No, it goes more than that. Jesus is the person of history. He is the one to which history is all about. This is why the Bible is the only source for the proper understanding to the message of history, because the message of history and the message of the Bible are one and the same. It's all about Jesus. Now, at this point, you're probably wondering, Pastor, how does knowing any of this help me when I get dissed by the world? <laughs> how does knowing that Jesus is the person of history help me when I get discouraged, when I get disrespected, when I get disappointed, disillusioned, disenchanted because of the way that the world treats me? How does that help me practically? Well, consider what it says starting in verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end, that person will be saved. Now here Jesus tells us 
the various reactions that people have when they get dissed. What are some of the reactions that people have when they get dissed? Verse 10, they fall away. They betray others. They end up hating one another. Verse 11, they're led astray. Verse 12, their love grows cold. And then in verse 13, Jesus says something interesting. He says, those who endure through the various ways the world disses us by not succumbing to these kinds of behaviors, they're the ones who are going to be saved. Now, you're wondering, what is Jesus getting at here? Well, believe it or not, he's trying to show us that by when we remember that he is the person of history, of how that actually helps us when we get dissed. Let me explain. The various behaviors that Jesus describes here, right? The love growing cold, betraying one another, hating one another, right? All of these specific behaviors tend to fit a specific mindset that is very prevalent today and is rapidly spreading. You know what mindset I'm thinking of? Consider this eye-opening quote from Pastor James Ward as he writes, quote, living in a hostile world contributes significantly to the shaping of our personal morals and values, which collectively becomes our national morals and values. Victim thinking causes us to live from a defensive posture because we feel the need to protect ourselves from a perceived threat. Victim mentality always encourages a self-centered, self-serving focus and inhibits the consideration of what's best for others. This mindset promotes serious crime within our society. Criminals are looking out for their own interests, not for the interests of those they victimize. Crime and all forms of immorality ultimately happen as a result of selfish motives stemming from a need to protect oneself from some form of victimization and quote. When you perceive yourself as the victim, right? Where you think of the world's wrongs to you as the most atrocious crimes against humanity, you are going to feel entitled to hurt the world back. And if given the opportunity, you will even feel emboldened to try and lead others who have been victimized like you to collectively come together and to just wreak havoc and hate out to the world because of the way the world treated you. This is why Jesus says what he does, starting in verse 5. What does he say? For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet, for a nation will rise against nation, and kingdom will rise against kingdom. It's interesting how Jesus describes those who respond the way they do. How do they call themselves according to Jesus? What do they say? I am the Christ. I am the Christ. I am the Christ. You know, the Bible tells us there's only one person who can justifiably and truthfully claim that they are the greatest victim of all, that they are the victim of the most egregious crimes against humanity, that they are the most innocent person of all, and yet we're treated as if they were the most wicked person of all. And you know who it is? It's the Christ, the one and only Jesus Christ. So when someone says, I'm the Christ, what they're really saying is, I'm the greatest victim, and I deserve to hurt and to hate and to bring spite and sorrow into the world for what the world has done to me, for the way the world dissed me. And if you think like me, let's come together and let's wage war against this world. Let's not make it better. Let's just live out our bitterness. That's what happens when you think you are someone that you're not, that you're the Christ. Which means the only way you can prevent this kind of delusion from happening is when you understand who the true greatest victim of all is. It's the person of history. And guess where you find this person of history as he truly is? It's the Bible. The Bible. 
Here again, we see another reason why the Bible is so important. It's not just important for your personal pietistic spirituality. It actually turns out to be very important also for the productive and protective structures of society to flourish because it gives the mindset that individuals and collectively nations need for a world to not go crazy and be at chaos with each other and being self-destructive. You see? Do you see? If you do, then you're ready to move on to the other final reason why the Bible is so important for us as it pertains to history. And this leads me to my final point. The Bible exposes the judge of history. Read again with me verse 29 and 30. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now this is some strange language, isn't it? Very odd descriptions of a certain event and yet it's not so strange to where we don't know what Jesus is talking about. What is he talking about? He's talking about the second coming where his story comes to an end. And what follows? Judgment. Specifically, his judgment, where he gets to judge over all the earth. And not just the earth, but all of creation, the cosmos. And if you think about it, that makes total sense. Because if Jesus, after all, is the greatest victim of all of history, that means he gets to be the supreme judge over all of history as well. It's the one who is most victimized is the one who's most entitled to justice. See, the Bible teaches us that one of the reasons why Jesus gets to judge over all in history isn't only because he's God. I mean, that's definitely one of the main reasons, but it also happens to be because he truly is the greatest victim of all. This is why whenever The Apostle John describes the vision that he sees of God's, Jesus' future judgment in Revelation. He always sees Jesus in the form of a what? A slain lamb, right? Revelation chapter 5, verse 6 goes like this. Then I, John, saw a lamb, Jesus, that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represents the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. You see this weird reference of Jesus having seven eyes and seven horns? That's an indication of his rulership, of his judging power that is able to go over all the earth and judge and scrutinize everything. And yet he's perceived what first? The slaughtered lamb the greatest victim of all history. Because Jesus was the greatest victim in all of history, he gets to be the supreme judge over all in history. You see? And because that is true, do you realize what that means? It means two things. First, as followers of Jesus, you don't have to worry about being on the wrong side of history. You guys heard that phrase before? Correction. Have you ever had that phrase being thrown against you before? Oh, you Christians, with your views of traditional marriage, with your stances on abortion, you're going to be on the wrong side of history. Just watch. You're going to be on the wrong side of history. Why do people say that? They say that because they assume there's going to be some future generation that's going to look back on us and condemn us in judgment because they believe we have victimized others due to our beliefs, whether intentionally or unintentionally. But when you remember who the ultimate victim is, This is not going to be an issue for you 
Because when you understand who the true and greatest victim of all is, your mindset is going to be, I'm here to protect, I'm here to advocate for the greatest victim by not encouraging further victimization of this person by promoting or encouraging or validating what victimizes him, namely sinning against this person, okay? You see, the big takeaway that I want you to get from this first idea is, as Christians, we are to promote and we are to accept what Jesus says we are to promote and accept, not what the world dictates we are to promote and accept. And the only way that you're going to do that is when you recognize who the true victim is because it's totally appropriate. It's the right instinct to have that we should protect and advocate for victims. And because we know Jesus is the greatest victim of all, he is the one who we protect the most. He is the one who we should advocate the most, you see? And if we give in to the social pressures of what being on the wrong side of history will do, what you end up doing is the very thing that those who would condemn you are accusing us of doing. Do you get that? Let's move on to the second thing to take away. Because Jesus is the greatest victim of all to where he gets to be the supreme judge overall, that means none of us gets to judge anyone in history at any point whatsoever. I know I just said a moment ago that as Christians we are to promote and we are to advocate for the greatest victim, which is Jesus. But that doesn't mean we get to judge those who victimize Jesus by sinning against him. Because even though we are called to commend and uh, approve what Jesus says, that doesn't mean we get to condemn and reject those who don't agree with what Jesus says. Why? Because it turns out you and I are no different from those who still currently victimize our Jesus by sinning against him. Who of us in here can say honestly that we are perfectly sinless? Who can honestly say that we didn't even sin this morning or won't sin later today? All of us in our own inconsistent ways still sin against our Jesus, don't we? Which means we still contribute to the victimization of the greatest victim of all. And yet, how does this victim respond to us? Does he condemn us? Does he reject us? No, he forgives us. And he promises to keep forgiving us. Why? Because of what he did for us on Calvary's Hill where he came into the world as a person and he suffered the full penalty and the full punishment of all of our sins by dying on the cross as our savior substitute. In other words, Jesus suffered the full condemnation and wrath of God in our place that we deserve so that if we put our faith in him, Specifically, if we put our faith that this is how much our God loves us and how forgiving and merciful he is, we will instead receive the commendation and approval by God the Father. What is that? That's the gospel. The gospel. You see? And when you understand this gospel, it will completely revolutionize and change how you respond to when you get dissed. Okay? Because the next time you get this, you're going to remember that you're simply being treated the way your Jesus has been and is still treated by the world. And yet, you will be challenged to respond the way he does every time he is. Not with condemnation, not with rejection, at least not yet, but what? Proclamation. Proclamation. Proclamation of what? Read again our passage starting in verse 12. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Here we read 
what our response should be when we get dissed by the world. We should be proclaiming the gospel. We shouldn't be proclaiming hatred. We shouldn't be proclaiming judgment. We shouldn't be proclaiming hostility and chaos and conflict. We should be promoting peace. We should be promoting love. We should be promoting grace. We should be proclaiming the gospel. And where do you find the gospel? And where do you only find the gospel? The Bible. Do you see? All of us get dissed all the time. You're probably going to get dissed later today. I know I am. I have five little ones getting ready to diss me at any moment. But the response should be what? Condemnation? Rejection? No, it should be proclamation of the gospel. Why? Because when I read my Bible, I see what the message of history is all about. It's a person. The person who is the greatest victim of all, who has every right to condemn, every right to destroy, every right to reject, and maybe he will. No, he certainly will. But until he does, in this season that we're in, we are to proclaim what he proclaims right now to all and therefore what his church should be proclaiming to all right now. We are to proclaim the gospel. But the only way you'll be able to do that right, is if you are grounded in the Holy Scriptures, the word of God. That, my friends, is how this world is going to be better off. Not through a certain political hero, not through a social program, not through the rehabilitation of an institution, but when the church does what only the church can do, proclaim the hope of the world that is found in the person of Jesus Christ in the proclamation of the gospel. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand this glorious truth of the hope that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, it is only in him that this world will not fall apart, but will be restored and redeemed by the power of the gospel. And Father, we know that there is no place and no people where that gospel is found except in your church. And Father, we know that the church is only able to do this when it stands on the only source of authority that man is to stand on, and that is your very word. The word that does not change, that does not ebb and flow, that endures forever. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to always to remember this and therefore live out this truth that we as members of this church, and Father, we pray for every church that claims you as Lord and Savior, that we would all collectively stand on the word of God and the word alone. Father, we know that this world is filled with so much sorrow, so many hardships, so much heartache because of the various ways in which this world is dissing us and each other. Father, we pray that your church will truly live out its calling of being salt and light by doing so in proclaiming the gospel that is found in your word. Help us to do that now. Give us the courage to do that. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen.